Hello, and welcome back to the Family Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. I'm your host for today, Mark Ablett. Of course, if I was a family financial remedy case, you might have me described merely as MA or H. That was until Mostyn J set the ball rolling on scrapping the default anonymity in financial remedy proceedings, starting with BT and CU in November last year, and most notably being expounded in the case of Xanthopoulos and Rakshina, which I'm delighted to pronounce correctly the first time of asking. Uh, my guest today unfortunately lost his application before me for a reporting restriction order, so he shall go from SP to Simon Perkis. Simon is an expert in all aspects of family law, including public law, and is known by solicitors for his stellar preparation and by opponents for an approachable manner. A very, wa- very warm welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you so much. I'm uh, very excited to be here, Mark. I don't know whether you've been watching I'm a Celebrity, but I, I thought Anton Deck were looking a little bit tired yesterday. So uh, I'm hoping that with a good performance here, we might get the podcast slot and an, an invitation to Australia for next year. I'm sure we can give them a run for their money. Um, so, so yes, yeah, Simon joins me to discuss the issue of anonymity and, and publishing, doc, uh, publishing judgments in financial remedies. And I suppose the first question, Simon, is why is this all the rage now? Well, I I suspect most of your listeners um, are matrimonial finance practitioners and will have at least some awareness of the work that's being done around the issue of transparency. But for for anyone that isn't, the president of the family division, Sir Andrew McFarlane, launched the Transparency Implementation Group, um, TIG, and that followed a report on the Transparency Review uh, published back in October 21, and the key, key conclusion in that report was that the time has come for accredited media representatives and legal bloggers to be able not only to attend and observe family court proceedings, but also to report publicly on what they see and hear. And the reporting must be subject to very clear rules to maintain both the anonymity of the children and family members who are before the court and confidentiality with respect to intimate details of their private lives. Openness and confidentiality are not irreconcilable and each is achievable, this uh, this report concluded. And the aim was to enhance public confidence um, whilst at the same time protecting continued confidentiality. And I, I don't think anyone would disagree with those uh, conclusions and the uh, the aims in general. Um, but the focus of the transparency review was originally on children cases and, and not financial remedy proceedings. Um, I'm sure everyone will be aware of the headlines that we've seen in recent years about secret courts, um, often in associated with removal of children cases and so forth and the headlines certainly didn't make for for great reading and you can see why the sun and so on um, were interested in reporting on that issue Um, however at at the same time as the transparency review were were looking into the children matters uh, Mr Justice Mostyn um, issued a consultation paper on proposed standard reporting permission orders so that was to codify and clarify the existing rules concerning the reportability of financial remedy proceedings to achieve a better balance between the privacy of the parties on the one hand and transparency and freedom of expression on the other. Um, and so I think <clears throat> the President and Mr Justice Mostyn clearly got their heads together um, and 
seeing that the reporting permission order clearly fell within the issue of transparency, decided to make a subcommittee of the Transparency Implementation Group, um, which just focused on the financial remedies work. Yes. What, so, what, what, what I found, sorry to interrupt, I found quite interesting is I think that was the, the Mostyn and, and Hess issue was the 29th of October from memory. Uh, the, send it over to the Transparency Group. Then it's only a couple of days later that you have BT and CU. So the consultation document goes out, but then Mr. Justice Mostyn goes, oh, hang on, actually, I'm just going to give a judgment where I make extremely clear what my views are. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess another thing that's quite interesting on that front is he'd already really um, picked his team. So, um, yeah, I uh, I won't say too much more about that, but um, I'm very interested to know what the uh, the conclusions of um, of the consultation are. And it's his honour judge Farquhar who's heading that up, and he, he wrote an article clarifying the ambit of the committee's work. And I have to say that the opening sentence of this article tickled me because it reads, "It's somewhat ironic, to say the least, that very few people outside our own number know who is a member of the FRC subgroup of the Transparency Implementation Group, how we work, what we aim to achieve." how we hope to achieve it and when all this will happen. And I have to say, I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's not widely known. Hence, of course, this podcast. Yes. And of course, if they do an early report, they'll have the advantage of the acronym of TIGR or TIGR, which will make everyone laugh. Um, <laughs> a little bit of humour for you on the podcast. Um, so, so I suppose the issue focusing on financial remedies, one of the issues is what privacy means and, and are financial remedies held in private are they held in in public perhaps we can deal with that first sure so i mean for anyone that isn't aware family proceedings um in the financial remedies court currently um are in private so that's pursuant to the family procedure rules 2710 so that is the starting point but the the curious thing is well what, what is actually meant by private because i'm not sure that your your man on the street would necessarily consider that something is private if the press can attend for instance mm. um so that that definition is provided in um within the rule 2710 and it states that no person shall be present during any hearing other than and it goes on of course to set out all the people you'd commonly expect to see in a hearing the parties witnesses litigation friends legal representatives but also duly accredited representatives of news gathering and reporting organizations so i.e the press and these bloggers that we've mentioned so although it's not a free-for-all private doesn't mean secret and, and before we, we get on to, to sort of, uh, I suppose, the conflict between financial remedy proceedings and, say, a Talata case, which I think is held in public, you, you were talking about the transparency group and, and children cases and that kind of public policy angle to, to whether proceedings should be held in, in private. I mean, is this distinction really between private doesn't mean secret, the reason why we don't have such an overriding public objective for it to be in public yeah I, I think absolutely um at the end of the day we are dealing with confidential matters um information which is certainly going to be sensitive to the parties um and so you know one considers article 8 rights and whether or not there should be um, a presumption if you like that such information should be disclosed and i think you 
certainly I fairly quickly reached the point where that that shouldn't be um, done as a matter of course. For, actually, when I was reading the um, Xanthopoulos judgment, um, it did interest me. And of course, um, Mr. Justice Mostyn goes into a, a lot of detail in relation to the, the history. He's certainly done his homework. And the thing that I found really interesting was that the um, the first reference to hearings being in private was actually in the 2010 family procedure rules. Now, I've, I've not double checked this, but I, I assume that's correct. Whereas previously it had been referred to cases being heard in chambers. Now, I, I'd have to accept that, you know, the man on the street doesn't doesn't necessarily have a full understanding of what in chambers means. I'm not entirely sure that I do, but it doesn't necessarily reflect private or privacy. Um, and so if that was only introduced in 2010, um, and that is creating some concern, I think there probably is cause to, to change that imminently. And there's, of course, this issue that, 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 that Mr. Justice Mostyn picked up in, in these judgments that, well, this is all very well, but since 2014, Mr. Justice Holman has, has been holding hearings in open court. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that was the conclusion that he reached. Um, and so that has been the case. And of course, um, yeah, of course, Mr. Justice Mostyn um, at one point was um, was not in agreement with that view at all um, and said so within various of his judgments, as he's subsequently acknowledged. Um, he's had a, a change of tune on account of um, perhaps looking into the history of these matters and reconsidering things. Um, but yes, there, there is this conflict at present as to um, whether or not hearings should be in private or in open um, when you would have thought that the, the court should have one uniform approach. And I think you, you picked it up already is, is that one of the key issues here in terms of private or, or open. At no point are we talking about members of the public being able to amble into the Queen's building and sit at the back of Court 42. It's about what can be reported in the press. So at, at the moment, where are we in terms of safeguards? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's open to um, either party to make an application um, to say that the press shall not attend the proceedings um, or any part of them. And the court has to apply the rules considering whether it's necessary in the interests of either any child concerned or in connection with the proceedings for the safety um, of any of the parties or witnesses um, for orderly conduct of the proceedings is, is one of the factors. Um, and has to consider whether justice would otherwise be impeded or prejudiced. So there is that ability to make this application um, to, in essence, ensure almost secrecy. Um, but that isn't the starting point and uh, an application has to be made. And there's this difficulty as well, and it comes up in the Mostyn judgments in, in Gallagher and Xanthopoulos about the fact that documents have been extracted under compulsion and how that works in terms of the ability to report and, and, and possibly see documents that have been drawn out of someone in that way rather than volunteers and, and how that kind of squares with the overall fairness of everything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is information that they, they have to provide. And so the idea that the starting point should be that, you know, any Tom, Dick or Harry can come into court, um, hear the, you know, ins and outs of people's personal lives, hear 
of course, in addition, the um, ins and outs of third party information, which um, often gets referred to. Um, it, it just seems to me, my instinct is that actually the balance is probably currently about right. So the proceedings aren't held in open court and open to the public at large. Um, but, you know, applications can be made if, if that's considered necessary. But in terms of the balance, sorry, Simon, I, I think what you're saying is the balance is that this is the pre-Xanthopoulos or, or pre-BTCU balance that the rubric that, that Mr. Justice Mostyn talks about applies, that, that, that they're held in private and effectively the presumption is anonymity if it's reported at all. Absolutely. So yeah, in, in terms of anonymity, and um, I guess I may be wrong, but if, if the recommendation is that hearings themselves should be in open court. I can't see that there'd be much logic to anonymizing the judgments if if anyone can listen to all of all of that evidence as it goes along and um, and hear the judgment in full. Um, so when considering whether reports and judgments should be anonymized, I think I'm starting from the perspective that well, there will be a recommendation from the committee that reflects the, the current norm in that most cases will continue to be heard in private or in chambers, um, <laughs> as you might refer to it as. Um, so that the press are able to attend, but not the public at large. And the question then is whether the party's identities should then be able to be shared. So to give a, a bit of context from my experience in it, anyway, as things stand, I think in the lower family courts, the vast majority of financial remedies cases for which judgments are handed down are anonymized. In the high court, it seems to vary but they do still tend to be anonymized. And in the Court of Appeal, um, I think Mr. and Mrs. Bloggs are named and shamed and have name tags on their dirty laundry. So there is this um, inherent inconsistency um, between courts and it does appear to be arbitrary. Yeah, and this I find I, I have a real difficulty with that. And I agree with Mr. Justice Moss in one of his judgments, he talks about that there was an, uh, a first instance decision. He was persuaded to keep to anonymize it because of commercial sensitivity, and he didn't mention the company, etc. Goes up to the court of appeal. Everyone's named and shamed, including the company, and absolutely nothing happened. Mm. And then you get his judgments, but then still, in recent judgment, Mr. Justice Moore comes out where he makes some interesting comments about pensions. That's anonymized. And then I was reading a judgment today from his honour Judge Hess, and at the last. Um, which is called, I will get the name, uh, YC and ZC, which tells you what he thinks of an, uh, anonymity. He says at paragraph 62, the last paragraph, I'm minded to publish a version of this judgment on the National Archives or Bailey, unless there is a disagreement between the parties. I'm minded to do this on an anonymized and redacted basis so the parties cannot be identified. So there he's starting, he's with you, Simon. He, he, he He's having the burden the presumption that it's going to be anonymized unless someone makes an application for it not to be. But then I think I've seen a judgment of his honor Judge Farker where he actually did the balancing exercise. So it's, it's a real mess, isn't it? This inconsistency. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do nail my colours to the mast. I just struggle to see how publishing a name adds to the, the understanding of the operation of the financial remedies courts, um, the application of the law. It, it just doesn't take us any further knowing that it's Mr and Mrs Smith. Um, you know, that, that's not, of course, to say that I can't envisage a situation where um, it may be in the public interest to disclose the names of those 
parties. But in that instance, of course, you know, provision can be can be made for that. Um, so it's it, one really has to consider fully, and uh, you know, no doubt this after this consultation, um, the report that ultimately comes out will do this. But the, the, it's the effect on the conduct of the proceedings, which um, is obviously on the one side of the balance. Um, and if it's known that um, it's very unlikely that any reporting will be um, anonymized, then it impacts how we as advocates, we as um, sol solicitors approach the matter, it impacts how um, the parties approach the matter. You know, you can look at, for instance, your, you know, your, your form E, when you're filling that in, you know, do you include conduct? Well, you, you might be trying to second guess the other side, well, they're going to be saying this, no doubt, we'd better throw this in, mm. you know, rather than focusing on what the, the real issues are. Um, and considering, yeah, considering the port, the reporting, rather than actually settlement. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, the case I was I was mentioning it was a Farker decision X and C, which obviously he anonymized again. But and and actually, you were talking about conduct, and one of the things that he mentions in that was actually the potential to use the the the, the names being publicized as a, as a means of control, as effectively as a means of abuse by one party towards the other, which has to be relevant. But yeah. I, I I'm with you. I it's difficult to see how naming names makes a difference, and even naming and shaming for spending loads of money on lawyers. Well. Arguably, it's naming the lawyers that's more important there rather than the, the parties. But it's really, it goes down to publishing judgments full stop, anonymized or anonymized. We don't probably get enough judgments, particularly from the lower courts. And that's actually surely going to be the sort of public interest argument in terms of helping people understand the operation of the law on a day-to-day -day level. And by that, I don't mean people with 20 million quid and a few Ferraris. Well, absolutely. Helping people at a day to day level and, of course, practitioners, because, you know, it, it's it's those kind of cases that we deal with day in, day out. Um, and reading the judgments is is helpful, um, seeing how the, the different judges deal with various matters. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, one one is just to move it on slightly is is we've talked about judgments, we talked about anonymity, but another issue that's raised in the in the 29th of October consultation is access to documents. Mm. That's quite interesting. How much should should and we're talking, we're not talking again public, we're talking about press or legal bloggers. What can you tell us about that? So, I mean, part of the uh, the trigger for all this was, of course, Mr. Justin's proposed standard reporting permission order. Um, and it just seems to me, <clears throat> uh, perhaps we need to get Mr. Justice Mostyn onto the podcast, um, <laughs> because I'm not entirely convinced that this is, you know, that the proposals are solving a problem. Um, I certainly struggle to see why the court shouldn't just start from the presumption that a party's Article 8 human rights mustn't be interfered with in the first instance. And, you know, when engagement with financial, financial remedy proceedings brings with it obligations to disclose all of this personal information, um, that surely is the, the fairest starting point. Um, and of course, there's a there's, the public interest argument also falls on the same side because um, you can't imagine, you know, many members of the public disagreeing with that. You know, people don't generally volunteer to to air their dirty laundry. Um, so, yeah, that's my view. Um, 
one of the other issues that that comes out from this is we're obviously looking to as to whether or not legal bloggers should be um, having access in addition to the kind of more traditional press. I mean, that's not a regulated industry as far as I'm aware. Um, they're not going to be insured. Um, and, and electronic documents are so easily um distributed that I, I can see there being real problems with that if um if you know the starting point effectively is that um that documents are made available yeah i mean i can also see i can understand the point that that it might be quite difficult to accurate accurately report even on an anonymized basis a judgment or proceedings if you haven't seen the skeleton arguments or a material single joint expert report or something like that yeah, I guess if a judgment specifically refers to um, the contents of a, of a paragraph in a document or uh, something similar, um, I can see how it might not. But it's pretty rare that I, you know, don't read a judgment and, you know, I, I'm not left thinking, oh, goodness me, I, I wish I could have read, you know, that particular, um, you know, tax return. Um, <laughs> it, it's fairly unusual to my mind. So I, I I still think that the the starting point, and of course, you know, it should be open for um, an application to be made by the um, press or legal bloggers um, for for disclosure of those documents. Um, I think it would be fairly rare that actually it is required. So yeah, I I just prefer to protect the parties' um, positions in the in the first instance. And um, yes, perhaps a, an additional application has to be made by um, the journalists. But, you know, I, I would prefer that the, the burden lies on them um, rather than the other way around. And if they were if they were set on privacy, what options are available to them in terms of avoiding the court arena altogether? Well, I mean, arbitration is the, uh, the obvious next step. Um, and to my mind, the, the primary problem with that is, of course, it can only be done by consent of both parties. And so, yes, where both parties have um sensitive information that they don't want to be disclosed be it their own or that of third parties um you can see how there might be consent but the point that you touched upon earlier about one party potentially exploiting the other um by being aware that um the other party won't want certain information disclosed and using that effectively within their negotiations will happen with the um the possibility of using arbitration as well they they simply won't agree to enter into it yes i think i think that argument was argued before it was before mr justice mostin in gallagher and he um wasn't wasn't particularly impressed by that <laughs> it doesn't surprise me at all but um it, I do sometimes also wonder whether that whether this move is some sort of a policy move, because, of course, the <laughs> the family courts are overrun at present. The delays that um, we see in getting matters listed for any type of hearing, be it first appointment, FDR or final hearing, are um, are often huge. And so by imposing a, a threat that actually there might be open court proceedings and documents will be you know 
as a matter of course, revealed to the press. Um, I think there will be a lot of people who would be far less inclined to go down the, the court route and would consider arbitration much more attractive. And it, and it might, from a policy perspective, be a, a sensible thing to do because the, the courts won't, won't be so burdened. Um, but yeah, we will. time will tell. I hope that they don't go down that route because from my perspective, I, I don't think it would be the right thing to do. Well, it, bring, um, it brings into question the conflict that actually is then weighed up if you are making an application, if you're before Miss Justice Mostyn, an application for anonymity, which is the comparison of the Article 6 right and the Article 8 rights. And that's that's really the issue, isn't it? Absolutely. That's what it comes down to. Um, and I, I don't think this, there is ever any um, escaping of that balancing exercise. It's just a question of who has the burden of making the relevant application. Um, yeah. And it seems to me that burden shouldn't be on the parties and that given that the courts are looking into confidential information of theirs that they're having to disclose they're being forced to do it and given that of course it's in everyone's interest not least the courts that full and frank disclosure is encouraged um, not discouraged um, it just seems to me the burden shouldn't be on those parties because they are by engaging properly in the proceedings doing what is expected of them all right well I suppose it's really a case then of watch this space and let's see what the the TIG come up with and uh Simon unless you've got anything further I've I've undertaken a careful balancing act and I think that's probably all we've got time for absolutely so, no th thank you ever so much and uh yeah look forward to reading the report when it comes out which I yeah. uh, I think is meant to be the end of the month oh uh, very exciting good Christmas reading um, absolutely <laughs> thanks Simon I really appreciate it and um thank you to listeners for listening coming up as we get towards Christmas your special present from Pump Court Santa will be a podcast from Jennifer Lee talking about cryptocurrency and tax. And I can feel the excitement tingling. Um, but until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Mm -hmm.